All right, and we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to FEDA. Today, we're going to break down the biggest heist in U.S. history. We've got a lot to go over. Let's get into it, baby. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FEDA covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. I'm reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young, young slime life. Here and after referred to as YSL. The defendant is uh, six nine. And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, six nine ran. With, I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes, aka Pusha T, violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Rapper Pusha T arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that that's gonna fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm gonna love my 50 women, right? Right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda, two terrorists, brothers Dzokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country, as this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're gonna go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, hope you guys enjoyed that intro. I know you guys were like, oh, man, the intro's too long. But hey, guys, it helps me set up. You know, I like it. You know, plus it gets you a little bit hyped up, you know, shows you guys the variety of things we cover on the show. And, you know, we cover all different types of crimes. Today, we're going to be talking about the biggest bank robbery slash heist in history, guys. This isn't really a bank robbery, but it was it was for federally insured funds. As you guys know, that means that the FBI is going to step in. So we're going to go ahead and break this down from 1997 my favorite documentary that you guys have come to learn and love are uh, one of them, FBI Files, older documentary from the late 90s slash early, um, <clears throat> excuse me, slash the early uh, 2000s. And here it is, guys. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to move this up. Oh, hold on a second, guys. We got a one-man show here, so bear with me here real fast. So I'm going to move this up here. Okay. And then I'll go ahead and have this ready for y'all. All right, cool. And yo, quick announcement, just so you guys know, I went ahead and um, made an Anchor account. I know a lot of you guys have been asking, hey, Myron, we want to be able to listen to this on audio when I'm driving through the car, whatever it may be. So we went ahead and made a new Anchor for FedIt. Okay, it's uh, anchor.fm slash FedIt1811. Um, I'm going to put the link in the description as well. And you guys will be able to listen to podcasts like this on audio only because I know some of you guys can't necessarily watch the videos when you're at work. You can, but you can listen, though. So we got y'all. And since it's FedIt, you guys don't necessarily have to wear headphones like we're fresh and fit. So I got y'all, baby. Okay, so let's get into this breakdown, guys. Um, and this is from the FBI files. It covers this heist from 1997. The episode is called Price of Greed. And uh, yeah, let's get this thing going. In Los Angeles, a bank.
band of gunmen invade an armored car company. They grab millions and then vanish. When the FBI does find suspects, insufficient evidence prevents their arrest. Agents and detectives try to penetrate the gunman's secretive world to bring them to justice. robbery is a terrifying ordeal. When a gang descended on a Los Angeles cash vault, they threatened to kill anyone who resisted. The violent assault was the largest heist in U.S. history. And a piece of plastic was the only... And it still is to this day, guys. It's still the largest heist in U.S. history. The evidence. I'm Jim Kallstrom, former head of the FBI's New York office. The FBI, LAPD, and the IRS joined forces to unravel a complex network of money laundering fraud and a tight code of silence. The Los Angeles warehouse district is a tough, bleak part of town. Street gangs and violence are common. The area's businesses are housed in nondescript buildings, many surrounded by barbed wire fences. One secure block was occupied by a leading armored car company. Friday night, September 13, 1997. Employees of the armored car company were going about their routine, counting and sorting over $20 million. $20 million. And just so you guys know, let's, let's figure the, in 1997 what $20 million was. Um, <laughs> all right, let's see. $2 million was worth $3,691,000 today, right? So, but $20 million, let's see, give me one sec here, guys. I'm pulling it up for y'all. Bear with me. It's a late night here. Okay, $20 million, guys. Here we go. This was $20 million in 1997 is equivalent in purchasing power to $36,919,127.73 today, an increase of $16,919,127.73 over 25 years. The dollar had an average inflation rate of 2.48% per year between 1997 and today, producing cumulative price increase of 84.6%. Holy, what the hell? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Okay. So now y'all know what they were really dealing with in today's numbers. So $20,097 is worth about almost $37 million today. The money would be dispersed to automated teller machines across Los Angeles to meet the weekend demand for cash. There were five employees, including two. And just so you guys know real quick, in the 90s, Cash was huge. Credit cards weren't like like they are today. Apple Pay wasn't a thing. You know, paying for things on the internet weren't a thing. People were purchasing things with cash and checks, guys, in the 90s. So 
um, it would make sense that they would have this much fiat currency sitting in one location to go ahead and push them out to ATMs, banks, checks, cash locations, etc. Security guards working the graveyard shift. At 12.30 a.m., one guard took his break in the lunchroom as he did every night. But he wasn't alone. Five armed men subdued the guard in seconds. Yeah, it ain't your money, bro. Just don't fight it. You know, guys, anytime you're dealing with, uh, you know, you're in a bank, you're doing security, whatever, a lot of times they'll tell you like, hey, you know, it is what it is. Just give the robbers what they want a lot of times because when they come in, they're going to you're going to they're going to outgun you a lot of times. dragged their hostage into an office where security monitors were kept. Then a second security guard preparing to go home for the night entered. Unarmed and out of uniform, he offered no resistance. <laughs> Do you imagine you're about to go home and then you see these guys and you're like, oh shit, oh man, the next thing you know, hey, get on the ground, motherfucker. I'm like, damn it. Four of the assailants headed for the cash vault. The fifth held the guards at gunpoint and monitored the security cameras. The employees in the vault prep area were unaware that the building was under siege. The gunman threatened to shoot if anyone disobeyed orders or made any sudden moves. Again, they're also trained to always give up when they get robbed. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's not your money, man. You know, so fuck it. The thieves now had direct access to the vault and it's $20 million. Holy. One man appeared to be in charge, barking orders to his accomplices. No, 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 this This man over here, this one right here. Number five, everything's on schedule. He also used a concealed radio headset to direct others somewhere outside the vault. So these guys are extremely organized. They're hitting them when they know that they got the most money and they're using radio communication. So that tells you right there and then these guys knew what the hell they were doing. When commanding his men, the leader didn't use names, only a numbered code. More details, more evidence to show that these guys were extremely sophisticated referring to each other by number. The robbers were coldly efficient, wasting no movement. In less than 10 minutes, they wheeled millions to the loading dock. 
Holy shit, bro. Oh, shit. Less oh, than shit. 10 minutes. They were taking about 20 million bucks. And for anybody that's seen that amount of cash, guys, is ridiculous. It weighs pounds at that point. Pounds. In the outer office, the gunman removed the surveillance recorder bolted to a desk. Seconds later, employees heard more destruction in the back office. When the leader and another man returned, the employees no doubt feared it was to eliminate witnesses. But the assailants only stole the vault manager's pickup truck. Man, breath air. Just left them there handcuffed. All right, it's on you guys. Suddenly, it was quiet. Believing that that's good though that nobody got killed man the gunman had fled the guards risked freeing themselves they called 911 LAPD officers were immediately dispatched to the scene okay hold on we're going to go down there Detective John Lakata knew the case was unusual from the beginning. We have experienced armored car robberies where the couriers or the truck are attacked. But this was the first time uh, we've ever had a facility hit. Yeah, and for them to hit a facility, guys, they, they knew what they were doing. Facilities aren't going to be as um, protected as a bank or as an armored truck, you know, so... These guys were efficient. You got, you know, between them knowing when to hit, um, going in in a systematic fashion, taking the guards down immediately, you know, immediately uh, neutralizing the biggest threats to them, then going ahead, moving our, their way into the counting room, you know, neutralizing them, tying them up, getting the money out, wheeling it out, using codes, um, and being systematic in their entire approach. These guys knew what the hell they were doing, you know, not your typical bank robbers, which is why they were able to make off with so much money. Officers secured the crime scene and detectives began interviewing the employees. They said the five assailants seemed to move through the facility as if they had been there before. They didn't see them leave, but they heard the sound of a diesel engine pulling into then out of the loading area. A sixth assailant must have been driving. One employee thought she recognized the voice of one of the gunmen as that of a former armored car driver for the company. She agreed to come to the station in the morning to study a photo lineup of former employees. 
Detective spoke with the vault manager whose personal pickup truck and keys had been stolen. They wondered why his keys were taken and not the others. The manager said he parked in the same spot each night. One of the suspects had asked him what the vehicle looked like. That led us to believe that whoever took his keys and had taken his vehicle knew him and his vehicle. The manager agreed one of the men's voices was familiar, but he couldn't think of a name. Yeah, the fact that he knew that he had the keys, you know, obviously they know this was more than likely an inside job. He said he would contact them if it came to him. Forensic technicians took impressions of the facility's door locks. Initially, damage found on the doors and locks suggested the thieves used force to gain entry. But later examination by technicians in the police lab proved otherwise. There was damage to the locks and the mechanisms, but not to the degree that it would have caused them to malfunction and to open. They believed the gunman had used a key, then faked signs of forced entry. Hmm. These guys were honest. officials some. later estimated the loss at a staggering $18.9 million. Fuck. $18.9 million, guys. That, my friends, is equivalent right here to $34,888,000. Uh, well, $34,888,575.70. God damn. Oh, shit. That is uh, what it equates to to today. So 18.9 mil in 1997. The robbers knew what to take and what to leave behind. All of the high cash bins, those bins that contained large amounts of cash were taken. Those that didn't, that contained stamps and cash checks were not taken. For obvious reasons. This suggested that the assailants knew how the company stored its cash. The robbers also appeared to know where the company had installed its video surveillance recorders, including a backup machine that was hidden inside a locked cabinet in the back office. Employees had heard the assailants destroy the lock to get to the backup VCR. The recording devices were kept in a cabinet, inaccessible to most employees. Uh, we interviewed all the facility employees, and 80% of them didn't know about the recording devices in the back office. So that's a good thing. That, put, that narrows it down to 20% of the employees that would have critical information like that. And also, guys, the people that they, room, they robbed was called Loomis. Uh, you know, it was Dunbar Armored Facility. But uh, it was Loomis that they robbed, by the way, because I think the documentary didn't mention the company. Investigators processed the loading area for any evidence of shoe prints, tire tracks, or clothing fibers. They found none. But they did discover what appeared to be a broken truck reflector or lens cover. Ooh, that's a big one. I personally spoke with the uh, maintenance person that had uh, cleaned the facility earlier in the day. And he assured me that that lens would have had them been left there sometime in the evening. So it was surmised by us that uh, it probably was left by the suspect's vehicle. 
and we didn't have a lot of clues as to what the vehicle would be other than that reflector that was recovered. And we didn't know if it was a common item taken off of trucks or vehicles. That's an important clue. Since the money stolen from the facility was federally insured, the FBI joined the investigation. Bam. That's how you get federal jurisdiction. <laughs> the VHS tapes. Holy shit, that brings back fucking memories, man. All the young boys don't know what the hell that is. Like, what is that shit? Agent John McCarran from the Los Angeles field office studied a crime scene video made by the Los Angeles police that detailed the sequence of the gunman's activities during the robbery. The five masked gunmen had pulled off the largest cash heist in U.S. history. Even to this day, and hope the public could help find them. Media was given general descriptions I, of the individuals. I don't think, honestly, guys, that uh, record will ever be beaten because we are starting to move uh, towards a cashless society. Um, you know, by the by the year. So I don't think that we're ever going to have this record be of um, 18.9 million, which is about 34 million, 35 million buying power today. They committed the robbery as far as height and weight and clothing and the fact that the individuals were all armed and um, there was a posting of a, a reward at the time. Assistant U.S. Attorney Alka Sager hoped the vague descriptions would be enough to produce a lead. The victims told us that they believed that the robbers were black and that was based on the skin color that they saw through the eye holes of the mask. Um, and they also told us that one of the robbers appeared to be lighter skinned and he may be Hispanic. They were not able to see anybody's face. But they had heard voices. At LAPD headquarters, one of the armored car company employees was shown a photo lineup. The woman believed she had recognized the voice of one of the robbers. Now she was trying to match his voice to a face. The lineup consisted of pictures of policemen mixed with several former armored car drivers and security officers. And they do this, guys, to make sure that they're not being unduly suggestive with, um, you know, with having a witness identify somebody. Because once you have an ident a witness identify somebody, they're going to want to, the first thing the defense is going to go ahead and attack you on is they're going to say, oh, well, you only showed the defendant the photo of my client and no one else that looks like him. So, of course, they're going to pick them from a lineup. So you have to go ahead and get either a six-photo array or you could do this where you have a bunch of different pictures and you just scroll through and you show it to them. And then that allows you to better articulate that you did not, you know, pressure the the the, the potential witness and or put them in a situation where, you know, you for you it's like they had no other choice but to pick that defendant you know what i'm saying so the more people that are there the more you can argue no bro we were being unbiased as you know as possible we took measures to not be biased and the witness was actually able to identify the person positively um with their recollection
she picked one former driver as a possible match to the voice she heard on the night of the robbery. Gotcha, bitch! Police learned that the man had recently left L.A. for New Orleans. Agents from the FBI's New Orleans field office approached the former armored car driver at his family's home there. He said he was unaware that the company had been robbed and was willing to cooperate. He said that he had left his job on good terms a few weeks before the robbery. It turned out that he was out of town on vacation during the robbery, and uh, the agents were able to corroborate his uh, statements about being out of town. And just so you guys know, that female is the AUSA, a.k.a. the federal prosecutor in this case. She's the one that's overseeing the investiga investigation, making sure that, you know, they get enough evidence to go ahead and go after these guys. Typically, after a bank robbery this big, the AUSA is going to be attached to the investigation from the onset, which is great because then you can go ahead and make sure that you guys are working in tandem and making sure the evidence is collected appropriately. Um, and in this case, they went ahead and interviewed somebody in another state. So, you know, you're going to reach out to that other office, send a collateral request. They're going to go out, interview them and write a report up, send it back, and, uh, you know, you can go ahead and start to, you know, check off boxes in your investigation. Thank you very much. On the night of the robbery in Los Angeles, the man was 1,900 miles away in Louisiana. So he was ruled out as a suspect. Despite the false lead, investigators still believed the robbery had been an inside job. But whoever the gunmen were, they left little behind. And with $18.9 million in their hands, they could be anywhere. In September 1997, the FBI and the LAPD were unable to identify any of the six masked men who had robbed an armored car company of nearly $19 million. They believed at least one was a current or former employee, since the gang entered the building with a key and knew where hidden surveillance equipment was. You made mention at the scene. In a second interview, the vault manager on duty during the heist realized he recognized the voice of the lead gunman. Plus he, he just got let go. He believed the man was Alan Pace, a former company employee. He thought Pace was one of the two gunmen who stole the keys to his pickup truck. Pace was familiar with the truck and had asked to borrow it before. Mm. FBI Special Agent John McCarran studied Pace's employment history. Alan Pace was an employee who had worked for the company for approximately a year and a half. He was actually suspended the day prior to the robbery. Oh, shit. 28-year-old Alan Pace had no criminal record. But when the company suspended him for disciplinary reasons, he had not turned in his keys. You would think they would change the locks, but stupid. Of course not. Investigators went to interview Pace at his home in Los Angeles. Pace told them he knew about the robbery through the media, but assured the agents that he had nothing to do with the heist. 
He said he was at a party with his girlfriend on the night of the crime. He gave them her address and phone number. Investigators needed to verify Pace's alibi. They called in for a background check on the girlfriend. Detective John Licata learned she was a former employee too. Mr. Pace's oh, girlfriend wow. worked in the facility in the cash vault area and specifically had a position that required her to handle the security video equipment. She had uh, been terminated approximately four weeks prior to the robbery. So they got Alan Pace, who had been suspended, and then they has got his girl, who had been fired prior, and she knew about the security cameras. Investigators asked Pace's girlfriend about the night of the robbery. She confirmed that on that night, Pace and several of his friends attended an all-night party in Long Beach. She and Pace stayed at the party through the early morning hours of the following day. And there were plenty of witnesses who saw them there. Though suspicious, Pace's alibi was corroborated, and it was enough to block investigators temporarily. Oh shit, we got an alibi. They would need a different tack to keep the case moving forward. So he became clearly when he did this case, he was a regular agent, but now he's a supervisory special agent. So uh, as you guys know, I've broken this down before, but supervisory special agents oversee a team of, you know, between five to 10 agents. Um, and they don't, the supervisor doesn't necessarily carry cases. The agents underneath him do. And this, this case, I mean, I'm sure that's a part of why he got promoted by, um, you know, solving this case. Um, but yeah, now he's a supervisor for this documentary. Yeah, John, John McCoy here. The only we physical evidence was a cracked amber lens found at the crime scene. We're going to, uh, they believed it came from a diesel truck used as one of the getaway vehicles. They needed to find that truck. I got the assistance of some of my partners and half a dozen of us for the next five evenings between the hours of 11 p.m., and 3 a.m. Um, went to the location of where the armored car facility was and interviewed anyone that frequented the area either on foot or in a vehicle. A week after the robbery, they patrolled the warehouse district near the scene of the crime. After several nights, they found a homeless man who lived on the streets in the area. Henry, Henry, Henry's where you stay. He said that on the night the robbery took place, he saw a mid-size rental truck idling near the armored car company. Oh shit! What kind of truck? It sounded like a diesel. Big white truck. He noticed it that night because usually there was little business or late-night traffic in the area. But he didn't see the driver. He'd never seen the truck there before or since. Shout out to homeless people in L.A. <laughs> Being great witnesses. The description of the diesel rental truck fit the victim's statements that they heard a diesel truck in the company loading area. 
Investigators suspected that the amber lens found in the loading area had fallen off that truck. Teams of agents and detectives canvassed facilities in the Los Angeles area that rented diesel trucks. They showed employees a photo of the partial lens found at the crime scene. Several recognized the lens as the type used on the running lights for a certain model of truck. The lenses were a problem because they frequently fell off and needed to be replaced. There were 83 rental truck facilities that rented the truck that the lens most likely came off of. We subpoenaed documents from all the rental vehicles that they... And guys, a subpoena is basically when the government sends you a request for some type of information and you must comply. They had rented two months prior to the robbery. It's a legal request. For a period of time, two months after the robbery. So they got themselves a nice little window. Investigators spent hours pouring through the rental records. But there were no rentals by Alan Pace or his girlfriend. It looked like another dead end. Remember, Alan Pace is the guy that was, you know, had the keys still and had been suspended by the company. And his girlfriend was a former employee who had been fired a month prior. Authorities contacted Assistant U.S. Attorney Alka Sager for legal advice on how to proceed. And again, there she is. She's the prosecutor. You can't just go get a warrant because somebody's a suspect and you think that they did a crime. You have to have evidence that they committed the crime. Alan Pace had denied any involvement in the robbery and had even claimed that he was um, at another place. He had an alibi, which witnesses that we spoke to corroborated. So at that point in time, all we had was the fact that he was a disgruntled employee who had been fired the day before the robbery and uh, one of the uh, employees uh, believed that the one of the robbers had a voice that was similar to his and that clearly was not enough evidence so at this point guys all they have is an employee that says yo it sounds like his voice um a, like a little you know vehicle light and really not much else so Investigators need to start to take some uh, a little bit more aggressive steps to try to figure out who the robbers actually are. To find out more, the FBI and LAPD began watching the former armored car company employee. If Pace was involved in a multi-million dollar robbery, he might show signs of his newfound wealth. We did do surveillance of Mr. Pace, and he did not appear to be living beyond his means. He didn't appear to be spending a lot of money. He didn't appear to have a lot of cash at his disposal. Nothing implicated Pace in the robbery beyond the circumstantial evidence they already had. As the months passed, there was little movement on the case. The reward for information leading to a conviction now totaled $250,000. Holy crap, bro. That's quite a bit of money back then in 1997. Let's go ahead. $250,000 in 1997, guys, has the equivalent buying power of 461000 
$489.10 today. So damn near double, guys, um, is what it was. And that's a really big reward um, to catch some damn bank robbers in 1997. I'll tell you that. But the amount of money they took was ridiculous. I remember, guys, this is 30, 34, 35 million, you know, in today's dollars of 18.9 million back then was about 35 million today. Despite the extensive media publicity this case received and uh, the rewards uh, for any information about uh, the perpetrators of this robbery, there were absolutely no leads, uh, no forensic evidence, uh, no eyewitnesses. Uh, the investigation just came to a grinding halt. Though Pace was still the primary suspect, without more substantial evidence, the FBI was unable to make an arrest. For now, it appeared that Alan Pace and five accomplices had gotten away with nearly $19 million in cash. By September of 1998, a full year had passed since six masked gunmen made off with almost $19 million. The prime suspect was Alan Pace, a former armored car company employee suspended the day before the crime. Assistant U.S. Attorney Alka Sager was frustrated by the lack of evidence against Pace. It didn't appear that he was out there spending money. It didn't appear that he had the fruits of the crime. So um, there really wasn't any legal, legal basis to go out and arrest him or even to search his house. Then, press coverage of the one-year anniversary of the crime prompted a lead for case agent John McCarran. An informant called the FBI, saying he thought he might know one of the robbers. Oh, I tell you guys all the time, informants help cases significantly, man. That's why when I was an agent myself, I had, me personally, guys, I was there was a time period where when I was an agent, I was controlling like damn near 10 plus informants. You know, some documented, some not. You know, you got confidential CIs that are, you know, documented with a number that you actually pay. You got source of information that, you know, just provide information because, you know, they they may like you as an agent. They want to help law enforcement, et cetera, Good Samaritans. You got um, people that are cooperating defendants in cases where they're trying to work off time. Um, you have other sources that other agencies might go ahead and control that you also co-control. So, um, yeah, man, it's uh, make cases. You got to have informants. Any good agent has a bunch of informants. Investigators went to the informant's home in oh, suburban Los on. Angeles. The informant explained he had been an employee of the armored car company a year earlier, around the time of the robbery. He had since left to become a real estate agent. He claimed that shortly after the robbery, he was given $100,000 in cash to purchase a home for a man he knew. Eugene Hill. Hill asked that the deed to the home be listed in the name of his girlfriend. At his girlfriend's apartment, Hill stored a trunk filled with smaller boxes. He gave one of the boxes to the informant. It contained cash, still bundled by bank wrappers, totaling $100,000. And guys, $100,000 in 1997, just to give you guys a little bit of a perspective here, right, is the equivalent 
to $184,595 today, guys. So imagine, you know, you're there chilling, whatever. And then your guy's like, yo, bro, uh, yeah, I got some cash. Uh, check this out. And then, bam, they give you 185 k pretty much. You're like, what the fuck? Bro, where'd you get this money? And it's wrapped in bank, <laughs> in bank bands. The informant, when he received the money, noticed that the $10,000 bundles had these bank straps on them. He kept those bank straps. They were oh, dated shit. the two days prior to the heist. Oh, we were able to, oh, shit. to oh, later shit. determine the paper type wrappers actually came from some of the money stolen from the armored car company. Oh shit! Oh shit! The informant said Hill changed his mind and asked for the money back, but in cashier's checks, not cash. The informant had kept $15,000 and Hill had recently begun threatening him. He hoped the So you see obviously he he you know so you guys see what he did there what he wanted him to do was give him the money back in cashier's checks so that he can get the money laundered but it was a failed attempt because he kept some of the money and obviously the dude got mad like bro give me my 15k back so that's why he cooperated with you know the police. So he basically uh got this dude to essentially launder money for him unwillingly essentially the fbi could protect him eugene hill had no criminal Compton. record and had never worked at the armored car company but a background check revealed hill had a connection with prime suspect alan pace both had worked for another security agency in los angeles Investigators began surveillance on Hill. At one point, they followed. So now that's a very solid lead, guys, because think about it. This dude had given the informant money with bands that were tied back to that particular robbery. So now this guy co goes all the way to number one in the suspect list. Into a business named Extreme Entertainment. The company billed itself as an entertainment service that provided everything from children's games to exotic dancers. Business records revealed that Eugene Hill was a partner in the company, along with Alan Pace. Oh! So these guys have a business, an entertainment business, and next thing you know, the first suspect, Alan Pace, who remember, guys, had been suspended by this company and his girlfriend had been fired a month prior who knew about the surveillance vid videos he's partnered up with this guy hill now who runs this business and had paid this real estate agent or tried to pay this real estate agent to essentially launder money for him and change his mind about it down the road so i need a bag of cashier's checks investigators suspected that extreme entertainment was likely established to launder money from the robbery the Internal Revenue Service was brought on board and supplied with information from records and documents which would assist us in preparing money laundering charges against some of these individuals. And you typically bring uh, the IRS and guys in your investigation when there's a very strong financial nexus, um, especially when you got individuals like this that aren't necessarily paying taxes or whatever it is. Um, you know, IRS agents, you know, they're meticulous. You know, a lot of them are accountants. A lot of them are come from a financial background. Their academy is actually one of the longest. Uh, I think it's probably the longest federal agency academy in the country right now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, longer than FBI, longer than HSI, longer than ATF, um, because they go through quite a bit of financial um, 
background when they go through the academy. It's a pretty difficult academy. The investigative team learned more about the company. Besides Alan Pace and Eugene Hill, Extreme Entertainment listed two other men as partners, Terry Brown and Fred McCrary. The four had worked together at the same LA security agency before Alan Pace was hired at the Armored Car Company. Oh. Extreme Entertainment's accounting books looked suspicious to Los Angeles IRS assistant special agent in charge, Philip Mullins. There were four suspected robbers involved in extreme entertainment. So this is the IRS agent now that was on the case at the time. He's at ASAC now, which means he's in management. But prior, um, he he was an agent on this case. Extreme entertainment wasn't really generating very much income, but there was a lot of cash going through the business uh, into the bank accounts and then a lot of money being paid out in salaries. So that's obviously a big red flag because they're not making that much money yet they're able to go ahead and move money throughout the company and pay everybody really big salaries how are they able to do that when they're not generating income investigators began to dig deeper into the financial backgrounds of the four partners when you follow the money it always leads you back to the crime they subpoenaed bank statements credit card reports and tax returns in the personal bank and it's a pain in the ass to get tax returns, by the way, guys. But when you work with the IRS, it's very easy to get them. You have to do an ex parte order to get tax returns without the IRS involved. So um, that's smart that they brought them on in this investigation. And then the fact that they were able to get all these financial documents, I know for a fact that they did grand jury subpoenas to go ahead and get these documents. Because what the thing is, is that when you do regular subpoenas, guys, the when you do a regular admin subpoena, even though it's a legal document, the subscriber and or person of the business of what you're serving the subpoena on, they have a duty to notify their customer. So for example, if you do a subpoena to let's say somebody like Facebook or Yahoo or whatever, after 30 to 60 days, what they may do is they may notify the subscriber, hey, just so you know, the government requested a documents on this account that you control. And obviously that will go ahead and mess with your investigation. So the, in order to thwart that, the way around that is you do a grand jury subpoena, which is a subpoena that is issued through a grand jury, through the U.S. Attorney's Office, and that will allow you to get um, records and or documents without any type of issues uh, where they have to notify the customer, subscriber, or whatever it may be. So with financial records especially, you always want to go the grand jury subpoena route. I've done financial investigations before, so this stuff is drilled in my head, man. <laughs> records of Eugene Hill. They found the suspect had a second source of income. One of the things that we discovered were deposits of checks from a company called Rainforest. Now, we'd never heard of Rainforest, and we didn't know what kind of company it was. So we went and looked at the Rainforest bank records, and we found that in addition to writing regular monthly checks to Eugene Hill, Rainforest was also writing checks on a regular basis to somebody named Thomas Johnson. Like Hill, Thomas Johnson's position is someone else identified. Rainforest was listed as a consultant. It was unclear what type of consultants they were. Rainforest was in business developing new recycling technologies. Johnson and Hill had invested $2 million in the company. The investment in a legitimate company was a classic money laundering scheme. Yes. You take bad money. 
money, you invest it in something, you hide it, conceal it, and ultimately end up with something that looks legitimate. And that's essentially, guys, what money laundering is in layman's terms. Take illicit funds, you know, derived from criminal activity, putting it into something to try to conceal the source of said funds so that you can go ahead and legitimize it and then be able to enjoy the fruits of your illegal labor. Investigators felt confident that the five men were strong suspects, but so far, no evidence connected them directly to the $18.9 million robbery. LAPD Detective John LaCara and his partner, Detective John Wong, cross-referenced the suspects' names against truck rental records from the time of the robbery. Sure, that'd be fine. Uh, Detective Wong made an important discovery. My partner, John Wong, is the one that found the rental agreement from one of the suspects, Eugene Hill, in which he had rented the, the suspect's vehicle that was used that night um, just prior to the robbery and then returned just after the robbery. Oh, we were snap. able to locate that very truck. It was still in the Los Angeles area. And we got that truck and we removed the light assembly and had the FBI forensics lab compare it to the lens that was found on the loading dock area. They needed to know if the amber lens had fallen off that truck while waiting for the lab results, investigators looked further into suspect Thomas Johnson. Johnson lived in an expensive home in an upscale Las Vegas neighborhood. And just so you guys know, uh, Las Vegas is only about three hours from LA. Um, it's very common for people to make that drive, you know, every weekend or whatever, because, you know, in Los Angeles, the bars close at pretty much 1.30 to 2 a.m., um, in Vegas, they obviously don't close. So very popular party destination for L.A. people is Las Vegas. The IRS conducted surveillance of his residence. And during that period of time, his girlfriend at the time was identified. Agents flagged the girlfriend's name. If Vegas police ran into her, they should call L.A. On the night of September 10th, 1999, nearly two years to the day after the robbery, the team in L.A. got a call and boarded a helicopter. There had been a domestic disturbance at Thomas Johnson's Las Vegas home. Johnson's girlfriend had called the police. Oh, shit. Here we go. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Let's see what happens next. They hope to use the disturbance call as an opportunity to question the girlfriend. She alleged that Johnson had beaten her. She was more than willing to answer any questions they had about him. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, Hell shit. hath no fury like a woman scorned, man. She said Johnson was laundering money through the Las Vegas casinos. He and a friend would buy thousands of dollars in chips that he would later have her exchange for cash. The exchange was always in amounts less than $10,000 to avoid filling out cash reports. All right. So real quick, guys, this is extremely common uh, to launder money going to Vegas. And basically, I had a drug investigation 
Where, and you know what? I'll probably do a breakdown on this case for you guys. But what the guy did was he had a scheme where he would take his drug money. He would go to Vegas, travel there. You know, he'd go there with 10, 20, 50,000, $100,000. What he would do is <clears throat> he would, you know, play one game of poker, play one game of, you know, blackjack, whatever. I'm not really a gambler myself. But he'd play one hand and then he'd, you know, win or lose. Okay, cool. Cash out. Take those c- c- casino receipts and basically legitimize that money that he had um, that he had pretty much put into the game. Uh, so that's one methodology of, you know, obviously laundering money through casinos, especially in Las Vegas, where they're seeing a lot of money all the time. The other thing, too, guys, is that with ten thousand dollars, that is you have to fill out something called the currency transaction report, which is monitored through the IRS. Okay. So anytime you leave the country with $10,000, you got to declare it to customs or come in with $10,000, you got to declare it to customs. And then anytime you conduct a transaction that is $10,000 or more in the United States, that institution is responsible for filling out a currency transaction report, aka CTR. And that's what they also do at banks, jewelers, et cetera. Anything where um, high-priced merchandise uh, or high-priced transactions may occur. Let's get back into the video. Thomas Johnson appeared to be very fond of gambling and appeared to have a lot of money with which to gamble. Um, And it's a little tricky when you uh, do these types of investigations because you don't know where that money is coming from. If it's perhaps gambling winnings that are then being used to conduct more gambling activities, or if it's perhaps what we thought, which was money from the robbery. The girlfriend told investigators Johnson had mentioned a big job that he had taken part in back in Los Angeles. She said Johnson had invested in a company with a gambling friend. When investigators showed her a photo of Eugene Hill, she confirmed that he was Johnson's friend. Bam. The circumstantial evidence against Thomas Johnson Alan Pace and Eugene Hill was building. But it was still not enough to make any arrests. Agents would need to turn... But it is strong circumstantial evidence that shows that these guys are more than likely the perpetrators. ...the suspects against one another if there was to be any hope of convictions. Two years after six masked gunmen robbed an armored car company of $18.9 million, the FBI, IRS, and LAPD had gathered strong circumstantial evidence against five suspects, but had nothing that directly tied the men to the crime. The only physical evidence recovered was a cracked amber lens found in the loading area of the armored car company. Investigators believe the lens fell off a truck rented by suspect Eugene Hill the day before the robbery. They sent the broken lens and the other lenses from the truck's running lights to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. Forensic metallurgist Michael Smith compared tool marks from the broken lens to those on the other lenses from the truck. On this case, the marks look rather like the uh, the, the rings on a tree, um, and we attempt to see whether those marks line up or not. Using a high-powered comparison microscope, he made an exact match. The same oh, tool shit. that made oh, all shit. the lenses in the same work session 
indicating the broken lens had very likely come from the truck rented by Hill. That's crazy. But that's awesome, really strong evidence. The forensics results were compelling, but they did not definitively prove that Eugene Hill or the other four suspects were with the truck during the robbery. Assistant U.S. Attorney Alka Sager needed stronger evidence before authorizing arrests. She hoped. Okay, real quick, so that you guys are probably wondering, what the hell do they mean by her authorizing arrest? Well, number one, guys, forensic evidence back in you know in the late '90s like that was still relatively new, right? So of course, the prosecutors are going to be a little like apprehensive to go off of that, right? Um, but it's fantastic because even though it doesn't show that they had been in the truck, it shows that that was a truck that was used. Okay. The other thing, too, that you guys got to understand is that when it comes to the feds, the AUSAs have all the power. Okay. It's not like the state and locals were dealing with assistant district attorneys versus assistant United States attorneys. Assistant district attorneys are for the state. Assistant United States attorneys are for the feds, right? For the for the government, the federal government. So when you make arrests, right, as a local PD officer for the state, you have a lot of discretion. You're able to go ahead and articulate probable cause fairly easy, and you're able to make arrests right there on the scene, okay? And they need to be able to do this because, you know, in general, regular law enforcement officers, police officers, state troopers, etc., they're coming into contact with individuals more, way more. They may see things happening in the field, and they're able to make arrests. However, in the state level, they lose a lot of those cases, okay? The state loses a bunch of cases. Right. Because a lot of times when you're, you know, kind of making things happen right there on the spot, you know, evidence gets thrown out. It's not as strong, etc. Now, when it comes, you know, and they're able to make the arrest and then kind of give it to the ADA and then the ADA has to deal with it and clean it. The federal level doesn't work like that, guys. At the federal level, the AUSA holds all the power and you have to bring the case to them. They decide if they want to prosecute. They're able to tell you yes or no. Right. And they actually decline more than most cases that come through. And if they do like it, they'll take it. And then what's going to happen is you have to work that investigation with them and they're going to decide when they feel comfortable to indict the case. Because once the case is indicted, now the AUSA's office is on the hook to fully take it to trial and prosecute. The feds guys don't like to indict a case unless they know they can win trial. That's why the feds don't lose. Because by the time you're stepping into that grand jury room to indict, they already have everything they need to fucking get you. This is why everyone is terrified of the feds. So with that said, the prosecutor has a lot of weight in the federal system, the AUSA, as far as when to go to grand jury, indict, and then, you know, obviously from that, get the subsequent arrest warrants. So they're always going to be risk averse, and they don't want to lose because they have a high conviction rate, high win rate. And AUSAs a lot of times are divas. I'll keep it a thousand. But they don't lose, and that's the reason why they don't lose, because they are divas. Till's girlfriends would provide it we had identified uh, two of his girlfriends who also appeared to be spending not large amounts, but amounts of cash. Approximately two years after the robbery, we had gotten to the point where we needed to talk to these women that were in Eugene Hill's life. Worried that charges might be filed against her, one of Hill's girlfriends rolled, telling investigators what she knew. She told them that after the date of the robbery, Hill suddenly had a lot of cash. She said Hill stored two foot lockers filled with boxes of the cash in her apartment. She and a friend helped him count and sort thousands. 
Shit's getting real now, man. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Told her that before the new Chris Bills could be spent, they needed to look worn. So she washed them. Usually, Thomas... They weren't kidding about that money laundering, I guess. Fucking <laughs> guys. Johnson took part in the operation. She said they would go to Las Vegas, buy gambling chips with the washed bills, and then turn them in for new cash. Her Very common tactic. My drug dealer guy I told you guys about before did this often. Story corroborated the statement previously given by Johnson's girlfriend. And when I say my drug dealer guy, I mean a, the guy that I investigated, which I will break down that case for y'all as well. That was a that was a very very big case that I did when I was down in South Texas. It was a methamphetamine case. In return for her testimony, prosecutors agreed not to file charges against her. Next, FBI agents and LAPD detectives wanted to talk to Eugene Hill's sister. They had some questions about bank accounts the IRS had uncovered. We were able to subpoena her records and determine that she had several accounts that she was holding in trust for Eugene Hill. Those records showed that there were a lot of unexplained cash deposits into those records. And it also appeared that checks were being written for um, motorcycles and vehicles and other consumer goods. So oh, now shit. we oh, had shit. a little bit more indication that Eugene Hill was perhaps spending money that he really couldn't explain receiving. Using his sister as a conduit to do so. She agreed to talk to the investigators, but said she first needed to make a phone call. She stepped away and appeared to send a numeric page. Yes, guys, in the 1990s, that's how they went ahead and did their text messaging. It was through sending pages on beepers. Investigators asked her about the accounts she held for her brother. She was evasive and claimed to be unaware of any of her brother's financial matters. Moments after the phone call, Eugene Hill arrived. When questioned, Hill denied any knowledge of the armored car company robbery. He told investigators that he didn't have time to answer their questions then, but he would meet them the next morning at their office. Stop the cap! Loaded with cash, Hill was a significant flight risk. The FBI called Assistant U.S. Attorney Alka Sager for advice. Because like I said before, guys, they can't make an arrest without her authorization. So the agent, and I've been in this position before, guys, where you got someone, you know they're going to run, and you're like, yo, if I let this fucking guy go, I know he's not going to show up. What am I going to do? I call the AUSA, 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. Yo, listen, we got him here. I want to fucking take him. I'll write the criminal complaint. We'll file it. We'll get him in jail. We need to do it now. Let's see what happens. I was just getting ready for bed. Uh, the phone rang at home and the agent said, uh, you know, this is what Mr. Hill wants to do. Should we let him go? 
And it was just one of those split second, you know, decisions that had to be made. And I made the decision that we were not going to let Eugene Hill go. We were going to arrest him that night. As Hill was heading back to his car, he was placed under arrest. With only circumstantial evidence connecting him to the robbery, it was a risk. It is a risk, but you got to take it sometimes. The law requires an expeditious trial, and the clock had begun to tick. Told you guys, as soon as you arrest them, that clock begins, my friends. So at this point now, they have to get him in front of a judge. They have to, you know, give him a speedy trial if he asks for one. So that's how it goes at the Fed system. On September 23rd, 1999, the FBI arrested Eugene Hill, one of five men suspected in an armored car company heist. Assistant U.S. Attorney Alka Sager had made the decision to arrest Hill, despite having only circumstantial evidence linking him to the crime. By letting Hill go, there was a real danger that he would have alerted the others to the investigation. Given the amount of money that was taken in this uh, robbery, uh, it was apparent that these robbers would have the means to flee if they wanted to. Facts. And I just felt we couldn't take that chance. The search of Hill's home provided no solid evidence tying Hill to the robbery. But investigators did discover ledgers that showed Hill had purchased real estate in other people's names. Prime suspect Alan Pace was also listed on Hill's ledgers as having purchased real estate in others' names. Finally, IRS agent Philip Mullins had something on Pace. This was very significant in that there was over a million dollars worth of real estate purchased for Alan Pace that he had no legitimate source of income to purchase that property. If convicted, Eugene Hill was facing up to 40 years in prison. And just so you guys know, $1 million back then was worth $1,845,956.39 today, guys, which is insane. So these guys bought damn near $2 million worth of real estate in today's standards without really having jobs or income. So, of course, this is going to make the IRS go, where'd all this money come from? Prison. Hoping for sentencing consideration, he confessed and promised to tell police everything he knew. Oh, shit. He said Alan Pace recruited him and three others for the robbery. So that makes Alan Pace the head. Alan Pace told him that he had already spoken to Terry Brown and Freddie McCrary, and they were ready to do the job. And he wanted Eugene Hill to come on board and maybe bring another person in. So Eugene Hill approached Thomas Johnson, who agreed to participate, and that's where the plan was hatched. Hill confirmed Pace was the mastermind of the heist and leader of the gang. Because he had all the knowledge and he knew, you know, how everything was set up. Hill knew all of the men except for the sixth, who was a personal friend of Pace's. Pace told the others his plan could set them up for life. Five to six employees at most. Alan Pace told them that they would do the robbery 
on Friday night when there would be very few employees working there. He said that he knew who those employees were, that they wouldn't offer any resistance. And that's how he knew to take the car. And that it wouldn't be a problem. They would just uh, tie up the employees, uh, take the money, and they'd be in and out, you know, within half an hour. Following orders, Hill rented the diesel truck on the day of the robbery and met up with the gang at the party in Long Beach. Shortly before midnight, they left the party one by one. They drove to the warehouse district, then five walked to the armored car company. See how smart that was? They left one by one, so no one really noticed that they were all gone at the same time to, leave, to you know, create this alibi prior. During the robbery, one man stayed with the truck, waiting a few blocks away for the call to pull in. When the truck arrived, they loaded it up. Pace knew to take the surveillance equipment. They later transferred the money to a storage unit rented by Thomas Johnson, where it remained for two weeks. Four of them left in the rental truck. Eugene Hill and Alan Pace drove away in the vault manager's pickup since Pace knew where he parked each night. The six men disposed of the guns and VCRs, changed their clothes, and returned to the party as if nothing had happened. That's fucking smart. I'm not even going to lie, man. They, they had this shit planned out from the rip. In the time it took others at the party to drink a couple more beers, the gang had committed the largest armed robbery in U.S. history. Investigators needed to corroborate Eugene Hill's story. FBI Special Agent John McCarran and his team believed Thomas Johnson should be the next one taken. Agents in our Las Vegas field office were conducting surveillance on Thomas Johnson, and we knew his exact location. We followed him from one of the casinos. Agents tailed Johnson as he visited several casinos. They did not know if the suspect was armed. To execute a safe arrest, agents needed to isolate Johnson outside and away from the casino crowd. They asked a casino security guard to approach him with a ruse. The guard told Johnson his car had been hit and that he needed to go outside to fill out a report. Johnson took the bait. As he checked his car, agents safely took him into custody. Gotcha, bitch! Investigators laid out the case against him and the possibility of decades in prison. So, like Eugene Hill. So now they're systematically taking down the guys and getting them to cooperate against each other from, you know, who they think is the weakest to the strongest. So that, they had, so that when they bring in the main guy in, they can go ahead and get the get him cornered. Johnson cooperated in the hopes of a lighter sentence. Johnson verified Hill's version of the robbery 
and confirm that Alan Pace was the leader. Now, this is very important, guys, because even though they're criminals, when you have more than one crook's testimony and you have multiple you know, stories confirming the same exact facts, it solidifies each crook's testimony. Investigators finally had sufficient evidence. They quickly arrested everyone but the leader. We knew that Pace was aware of the earlier arrest of the other individuals. There was a warrant for his arrest, and he contacted me here at my office and told me that he wanted to self-surrender. Oh, shit. On February 28th, 2000, Pace arrived at the L.A. Federal Building in the company of his lawyer. He made no statement and refused to cooperate with investigators. Pace was arrested and held without bail. Four of the robbers pled guilty to robbery and conspiracy. Eugene Hill was sentenced to nine years in prison. Thomas Johnson received 10 years. Whoever comes to the table first typically gets the best deal. Fred McCrary received seven and a half years. And Terry... You probably had uh, lesser of a role and probably a lower criminal history. Brown got eight. The sixth gunman, Eric Boyd, fought the charges against him and was found guilty and sentenced to 17 years. Holy. That's what happens when you go to trial, my friends. After a three-week trial, Alan Pace, who had orchestrated the armed robbery, was sentenced to 24 years in prison. Holy. Agents seized all of the criminal's assets. And keep in mind, guys, the first guy that cooperated, Hill, he got um, nine years, right? Or nine or ten years. And the other guys got less. The thing is, you got to remember, guys, is that he actually got off better because he did a lot of the money laundering. He would have got way more time had he not cooperated. The other guys, they kind of had the money as well. But he was the one that had the businesses. He was the one that was, like, effectively moving the money to and from Las Vegas. So, he was facing a lot more time than the other guys that got like seven years, et cetera. Those guys were just like, you know, dudes robbing the banks or whatever. But he, since he cooperated, got less time in the grand scheme of things. He got the best deal given what they had hit him with. Okay. So that's why he got 10 years and some of the other guys got like seven or eight or whatever it may be. Those guys weren't getting hit with the strong money laundering charges that he was getting hit with. So for him to only get 10 for all the shit that he did. Um, yeah, that's significant. They were able to account for about $5 million of the stolen money. So about $14 million remains uh, missing. We don't know where <laughs> that money uh, is, uh, how it was spent, if it was spent. Uh, we just have no idea. Just so you guys know, that $14 million is the equivalent of $25,843,389.41 today. Man. Oh, shit! But whenever the felons are finally released, the FBI will be watching. If they make any moves to recover hidden money, they'll go straight back to jail. And just so you guys know, one of them, Alan Pace right here, the mastermind, was actually released on October 1st, 2020. And then Eugene Hill...
This is probably him here. Released in 2007. Yeah, that makes sense because he got arrested like in 99. Probably got out for, yeah, Eugene Lamar Hill. Yeah, this is him. So, um, no. Eugene Hill. Let me just double check, make sure. Yeah, it's definitely, this is him. Yeah, so he was released in 2007. And then the Mastermind was released in 2020. So, yeah, who knows? And I know that they're going to go ahead um, and uh, cover this in a movie, guys. And this right here is the Wikipedia, okay, page of it. The Dunbar arm robbery is the largest cash robbery to have occurred in the United States on September 12, 1997. Six men robbed the Dunbar Armored Facility on Mateo Street in downtown Los Angeles, California, of U.S. Uh, $18.9 million. Um, and that was the equivalent of 31.9 million in 2021, but we know that's closer to 34 to 35 million nowadays. The robbery was orchestrated by Alan Pace III of Compton with childhood friends Eric Damon Boyd of Buena Vista, uh, Eugene Lamar Hill Jr. of Bellflower, Freddie Lynn McRae uh, Jr. of Arletta, Terry Wayne Brown Sr. of Los Angeles, and Tom and Lee jo Thomas Lee Johnson of Las Vegas. So pretty much all these guys are out of prison now. Um, the, and Hill was the one that had the most time. He got 24 years, and then Boyd was sentenced to 17. So, yeah, man, this was the case, man. Biggest uh, heist in U.S. history. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed that one. We picked this one earlier on my episode of Fed It. Uh, I was going to do either this or a Mafia episode, and the guys wanted this one. So, you know, we went what the people wanted. Don't worry, I will do a La Cosa Nostra episode for you guys probably um, next week. Um, we'll cover one of the crime families in New York. Um, as you guys know, there were five main crime families. I might do an episode on the mafia for each crime family for you guys. But other than that, man, hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel because you guys aren't going to get breakdowns like this anywhere else on the internet where you got a former Fed breaking down federal, state, and local cases. Love you guys. I'll catch you. Also, don't forget, I'm on Anchor as well now for audio versions of this podcast. It's anchor.fm slash fresh. Uh, so, well, that's for Fresh and Fit, but it's for Feta. It's anchor.fm slash Feta1811. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, like the video, and I'll catch you guys next week on another episode of Feta1811 where I break down documentaries for you guys. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of two murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants is, uh, six nine. And this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6ix9ine ran with... I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. A.K.A. Bush I.C. violated. So what are the stay away from the victim? Rapper Bush I.C. arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, what happened at the gun range? Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm gonna lock my fifth right, right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Suspect to set down a backpack at the site of the second explosion. Inspired by Al Qaeda. 
Two terrorists, brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary...